Uh, if you have a, a Bible with you, if you want to turn and find uh, the book of Acts, uh, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, the words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me in a moment or two. We've been working through a series in the book of Acts uh, through, well, since the start of this year, um, spending some time looking at this story that you find in the New Testament of what happens after Jesus' death and resurrection, how his Holy Spirit comes and fills the church, the people of God, and then we see what they do next, how they go about building their family, their church life together, and how they go out into the world and begin to turn the world upside down. They begin to um, infect the cities, the nations that they're called to with the good news of Jesus Christ, bringing transformation wherever, wherever they go. Uh, and we're going to look at a, a, what's going to be quite a key passage this morning, and we're going to look at quite a long section from the start of chapter 10 all the way through to verse 18 of chapter 11. I'm not going to read all of it because it would take quite a while, so I'm going to skip a few bits out. And there's one chunk that we're going to come back to next week. Um, if you get some time later, you can read it. And there's a, uh, a little uh, four verses in the middle where it talks about how the Holy Spirit falls on them. They begin speaking in tongues. There's some other weird things that are going to happen in this story of a, an angel appearing. And Peter goes into this trance where he receives a vision. So all a bit wacky. So next week, we're going to look at that. So if you've got questions about what the heck is going on here, come back next week in the afternoon and we will explore those questions. But what we're going to do right now is going to read from verse, uh, from, yes, verse 1 of chapter 10 and then we're going to jump around a little bit through to the end. So here we go. This is verse 1. It says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the poor and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come into him and say, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry. This is good news, isn't it? Have you ever tried to pray and got distracted? Just you're feeling a bit snackish? This is what happens to Peter. He goes up onto the roof to pray. And he became hungry. and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened. And something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. 
and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Right, we're going to skip ahead now to verse 34. So what happens in the, the interim period is that these men come to Peter, they take him to Cornelius' house, and then Cornelius and Peter both explain what's happened. So verse 34 so Peter is now, he's with everybody in Cornelius' household. This is like a little church that's formed around Cornelius, this Roman centurion. So Peter preaches to them. And it says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people, to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge, to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then we get this account of the Holy Spirit falling on this little Gentile church plant. Now we're going to jump ahead to where Peter goes back uh, to his, uh, the, the, the gathering of believers in Jerusalem who are mainly Jews. And he says, says this, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And then what Peter does next is he explains the vision he had, how he went to Cornelius' house to, to eat and to be with these Gentiles and how the Holy Spirit fell on them. And then if we just read the last two verses, verse 17, it says, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Jesus, we just want to come and pray right now. We thank you we could start the service this morning just singing about how you're good and how you're so good to us that this morning we've gathered to receive of your goodness, to receive the love of our Father in heaven poured out for us in Jesus Christ. And we just want to ask Holy Spirit right now that you'd be at work, remind our hearts of your wonderful goodness. And we pray that the, the implications of that would 
begin to change our lives and our hearts. We want to pray that all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. All around us in the world today, we see lots of clashes where different cultures seem to be butting up against one another, disagreeing, where it's over uh, religious things or racial tension or just different people groups with different ideologies attacking and going against one another. And in the world we live, we've always had division, but it seems in the last two years that these different groups seem to have become more and more polarized from one another, that people don't seem to be able to have polite disagreements anymore. People don't seem to be able to have reasonable conversations, that there's so much anger and hatred around us that even the language around tolerance often seems so intolerant. You may have uh, even experienced some of this personally or the effects of some of it. And an important question to ask is why? Why do people react like this? Why is there so much tension in the air all the time? Why is there so much division? And I guess to cut a very long story short, it's because what happens is that we're often standing on other people's sacred, secular ground. That even though we live in a world that claims to be secular, that it's actually very religious. That there are beliefs that people hold that are sacred to them. Beliefs that they have, whether they're Christian or religious or not, which they're prepared to, to perhaps not die for, but they're prepared to fight for viciously because those things are sacred to them. You know, we have things, beliefs, values, which are, are sacred, they're, they're holy to us. Things that we think, I'm not going to let that go, I'm going to hold on to that, no matter what. But what happens is, as Christians, we go out into the world, we find that other people have values too, that they hold as sacred, that they're not going to give up on, that they're going to fight for. And when you bring one sacred viewpoint into the world of another, that's where you get tensions, that's where you get clashes. And that's what happens when the church, the people of God, steps into the world around it, into the culture around it. You get one social, religious group stepping into another. It causes tension, can cause disagreement. And we can look at people and think, why do you behave like that? Or they can look at us as believers in Jesus. Why do you behave like that? And it's often we will then judge people based on those behaviors. So if we put, there's a, a little chart that we're going to put up, if uh, you can find it on the screen on the back. Here you go. So we have behaviors at the top. This is the thing that you see on the surface of people's lives. Decisions that they make, things that they say, things that they do. And we will judge people upon those things, upon those issues that we see. But often what's driving them is values that people hold. Well, I do these things because I hold a value. These things are important to me. And then beneath that, at the root, at the heart of the issue, there'll be a worldview, a, a belief system, a way of understanding the world that has created those values that then leads to certain behaviors. So a good example would be how... 
Christians think about sex. We will behave in a certain way because we hold certain values based on what we believe about Jesus. That we believe that we find the, the true intimacy that so many people are longing for, that we find that in relationship with Jesus Christ. That we want to give our lives as sacrificial offerings of worship to him, even our bodies us themselves. And when you believe that in your heart, you're going to behave differently. But what the world may just see is your behaviours and not understand. Why are they doing these things? Or why are they not doing these things? And this is what's happening in this story, in the book of Acts, in this first century world. You've got a people that are suddenly captivated by a different way of seeing the world. That Jesus has come to them. The Holy Spirit has filled them and it's changed their whole belief system. It's changed how they view the world. And then when they go out into the world, it brings disruption. As the church goes out into certain places and says to the, the, you know, the Greeks in Athens, why are you living like this? You should be living like that. It creates tension and disruption. When they go into Rome and do the same things, tension arises when the church goes into the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will disrupt. But also what happens is that there's a disruption that takes place when people from, from the world around us step into the, the church. And again, that's what's happening in this story. That originally the Holy Spirit has come to a Jewish people. That's who Jesus has come to, living in Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish faith. But as the book of Acts has gone on, it's begun to push out. It can't be contained in just this one city. It begins to hit other cultures, other groups of people. We see the Ethiopian who gets saved a few chapters ago. We see them go to Samaria and people are getting healed. Now they're going to, to Joppa, to this group of Gentiles. Gentile just means non-Jewish. So they're reaching people who are very different from them. And as these people are getting saved and added into the church, it's creating all sorts of tension and disruption. And that's, what's, that's kind of the background to what's happening in this story. That Peter, in this story, who receives this vision, Peter had been raised as a Jew. He'd been discipled by Jesus. He's now one of the leading apostles that Jesus has sent out. And theologically, Peter's convinced that the church of Jesus Christ is for everyone. He's convinced of that. We know that because he says it elsewhere in Acts. In Acts chapter 2, he says, For all who are far off, salvation has come. In chapter 3, he says that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he's holding on to the, this belief that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone, for everywhere. That as he says in this passage, that God shows no partiality. That God doesn't say, well, not, not that people, only these people. That the gospel has come for all the peoples of the earth. He believes that in his heart. But what Peter also has, he's had this faith that he's grown up in, which has certain behaviors attached to it certain distinctives, certain laws that they hold to, in particular certain things that they will eat and things that they won't eat. And what's happened in the Jewish people is that means they've come to a place where they won't 
even spend any time with Gentiles. They consider them unclean because they're uncircumcised, because they eat the wrong food. Therefore, we, can't, we won't even enter their homes. We, we won't gonna, we're not going to go anywhere near them. And Peter, in his understanding at this point of the Christian faith, is he's believing, no, the, the Gentiles are going to be added into our faith. So they're going to have to start taking on all these practices and there's all these behaviors. They're going to have to start thinking about us, thinking about the world in the way that we see the world, behaving the same way as we do. And what happens is that he receives this vision. And what this vision is doing is taking all this legalistic behavior in his head and it's beginning to deconstruct it. And this is incredibly painful for Peter. It says that he was, you know, this vision comes to him. And at first of all, he, he denies it. He says, oh, I'm, not, I'm not having that. Jesus has to speak to him three times for him to get it. And then even then it says he was inwardly perplexed. That he was pondering the vision, which is a, it's a nice word, isn't it? Ponder. But the root of that word is actually something. He was probably feeling some kind of anger around it. He's thinking, how could God do this to me? He's been raised thinking that he should live a certain way and hang out and be with certain people. And Jesus has just come to him and said, no, that's not true anymore. Your life's going to look different now. And that's painful for him to consider that. But what he has to do is he has to begin to catch up his life with his theology in a sense what he believes has happened he has to start to change his behavior because Jesus has come and everything has changed now for him because it's always been the heart of God for there to be a, a reconciled church for people from all sorts of different backgrounds all sorts of different stages of life all sorts of different nations, all sorts of different attitudes and beliefs to come into the house of God. That's always what God has been promising, that there'll be unity amongst his people. In Isaiah 49, it says that the, the Israelites are called to be a, a light for the nations, that the salvation of God will go to the ends of the earth. That Abraham, right back in the beginning of Genesis, believed that all the families of the earth should be blessed through his family. It's what Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 3, that that's always been God's plan for a global family. And that's been achieved now through the work of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 is such a helpful chapter on this. It says, for talking about Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one who's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, Peter was living with this wall of hostility. The Jews were here and the Gentiles were here. And if God was going to save them and add them into his family, then they were going to have to, they were going to, have to cross over the wall themselves. They were going to have to change their behavior to come and be part of this family. But he's forgetting what Jesus has done that he's broken down in his flesh, that at the cross, part of what happened is this beautiful act of reconciliation, that the dividing wall that separates us from God has been broken away. 
and the walls that have divided us from one another have also been broken down. It goes on to say in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household and God. It's not like these people are, are on the inside and these people are on the outside. These people are, are the chosen ones and these people are just aliens, weirdos on the outside. It's like, no, you're all fellow citizens, saints, members in the household of God because of what Jesus has done, that he's achieved this unity with us. And the Holy Spirit has come now to breathe that into life within the people of God. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. Even in the, the Pentecost story, he's, that's why they're speaking all these different tongues of all these different languages, because God's saying, no, you were once divided, and now you've been brought together under the cross, that you've been made one. goes on to say in, in Ephesians, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That the Spirit's come to draw us to, to make this unity become real in our hearts. Because so often the way, the way we can view the Holy Spirit is a kind of a, a vaporous thing. A sort of like, like a gas, something ethereal, something just wishy-washy, out, floating out in the sky somewhere. But it's not actually how the Bible describes the Holy Spirit. Or it's not how the Bible describes the work of the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere in Ephesians, Paul calls the Holy Spirit a bond. It's like something that grips two things together. Or the Holy Spirit is called a, a down payment. It's like something you've received, which is real and tangible. The Holy Spirit is a real thing. It's not just a misty idea. It's not something magical. It's something real that Jesus has given to his church to unite us to him and to unite us to one another. And now as the people of God, we're called to maintain that unity. That's the commission that's given to us. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit. And he's using deliberately strong language. Make every effort. He doesn't say, just try a bit and then give up. Just give it a shot. If it doesn't work out, just move on. He's not saying that. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That is the task of the church. With us, with one another. Because you'll find that in the church family... Maybe you are here and you're part of the Liberty Church family. You'll find that relationships can be tricky. That we let one another down, that we promise to do things and then we don't deliver on those things. We definitely know it in our, in our family lives with your husband or your wife or your kids or your parents, whatever stage of life you're at. You'll know disappointment where you've been let down. We thought, oh, they've, why did they treat me like that? Why did, they, why, why did that hurtful thing happen? But God has called us within the church to make 
every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit. If you're out of relationship with another believer, then the Bible says, no, go sort it out. Don't just say, well, well, the church is kind of big enough that we can just go on a Sunday and just avoid one another. They'll, they'll go to the first service. I'll go to the second one. We'll go to different community groups. We just won't have to see one another and it'll be fine. That's not what the Bible says. It says, no, go, go find that person. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit. You see, Jesus has called the church to be both diverse full of different people but also called us to be distinctive that there are things that we believe that we're going to hold on to and what we see here with Peter is that that's where he he struggles he's he realizes that the church is supposed to be diverse that the Gentiles are supposed to come in but he can't make sense of these I thought this was a distinctive that we were supposed to live like this. How could we associate with people that are impure or that are, are unclean? And what Jesus is calling him to do is to remember the cross. Remember what Jesus has achieved on the cross. That he's begun this new covenant. Not based on a, on a whole load of ceremonial laws and procedures now, but based on Jesus' sacrifice for us. And Peter has to catch up his old way of life with what Jesus has achieved. And that's the battle that we have to do all the time, to catch up our lives, our behaviours, our attitudes, how we treat other people, to catch our life up with the work of the cross, with what Jesus has done. And we're going to find as we go through the book of Acts that it's not all resolved in this story that there's going to be more conflict that happens as the church, the Jewish church, tries to make sense of what do we do with all these Gentiles? They're so different from us. This conflict is going to bubble on a little bit more. But what does it mean for us? Is this just the classic sort of first century problems? But what about, what about us? You know, we live in a, in a city that celebrates diversity, that celebrates that we've got 180 different nations who live in our city. And that's something that we love as a church, that we get to have a church full of people from all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different racial groups, all sorts of different stages of life, and we get to do life together. But just having a church with lots of different nations with us lots of different people who are different from one another, that doesn't make you united. It doesn't make you reconciled just by sitting with people who are different from you. It's actually something deeper needs to happen within our hearts. Something deeper needs to happen in how we relate to one another. And we're not after uniformity. We're after unity. It's a different thing. We don't want everybody to be exactly the same. God loves diversity, loves people who are different. But to really maintain the unity of the spirit, sometimes you have to do some quite radical things as Peter has to do in this story. Because although we might not, you probably didn't walk in here this morning and think, I'm not going to sit next to that person because they're 
unclean. They're common, so I'll stay away from them. Hopefully, none of us thought that when we walked in this morning. But what happens is we will still come in and we'll judge people based on their behavior. You'll look even at other Christians and you'll think, why did they say that? Why did they do that? Why did that happen? Why did they treat me like that? We'll see other people's behaviors and we'll judge people based on our own standards, based on what we believe. And we'll forget the the picture that I showed you earlier, that those behaviors, those surface things, they're driven by some values underneath. The, The fruit that you see has a root to it. And so often we'll see other, pe- other believers do things and we'll, we'll judge them based on the fruit, based on the surface issues when God calls us to look at people's hearts, to think about things in a different way. And you've got to understand that we're not, we're not computers, are we? <laughs> it's not that Jesus just comes to someone and suddenly they're a Christian, so their, their worldview, their belief system changes, and then we all become like one another. Because there's all sorts of different factors and influences that shape what we're like. We will think differently, we'll relate differently, we'll have different motivations, we'll feel differently because of all sorts of different things that have shaped us. But as Christians, you can judge people on their behavior and not realize what's going on. If, if you're part of a, a, if your background is you're from a, an ethnic group that suffered persecution and violence against your people by those who are in authority over you, you'll probably struggle to trust people in authority. But yet people from a background who haven't experienced that We'll think, oh, we should, of course we should trust people in, in authority because the Bible tells us to. And we'll struggle to relate to people who don't, not realizing that they've got this whole backstory that's influencing how they think, how they feel, how they behave. That the behaviors that we see on the surface that will have a deeper roots to them, deeper issues going on. I remember when we first moved here to the Netherlands eight years ago, one of the things that struck me is, as I'm from England, if you didn't know, and in England, we're polite about everything. Most of the time about things we don't need to even be polite about. So if you're in a supermarket, and if someone else rams you with their, their trolley, their basket, you'll say to them, sorry. They did it, but you say, oh, I'm I'm terribly sorry. I'm so sorry that I was standing in your way. I'm so sorry that you hit me with that basket. You just apologize for everything. And then they'll say, oh, I'm I'm terribly sorry for hitting you with with my trolley. It's okay, it's okay. I'm I'm terribly sorry that I was in your way. I'm 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 terribly sorry. This will go on for five minutes, just being terribly sorry with each other. But we do this all, this is how we navigate through life. We just apologize for everything. We just think that that will make its way through. And then I arrived here in the Netherlands. They don't do that here. Yeah. <laughs> you might have noticed. They're much more pragmatic here. If they've actually done something wrong, they'll apologize. But if they haven't done anything wrong, <laughs> quite logically, why would you do that? 
But as an English person, it took me a while to adapt to that. And my instinct was to, to judge people because of that. You may have noticed, like cycling your bike, you know, every, you have to, you're required by law here to have a bell on your bike. And what will happen is if you're cycling up behind someone and you want to just let them know that you're there and you're going to overtake them, you might just ding your bell. But when that first happened to me, when someone cycled up behind me and just dinged their bell, because in England, you only use your bell if you're angry at someone. It's like a sign of your passive aggressiveness. Ding, ding, ding. So I was like, what have I done wrong? I'm so sorry. Why are you big? <laughs> they were just saying, oh, I'm just going to overtake you. I'm just coming past. But I was judging them. I was thinking, why is that, that nasty person with their bell? They're being so mean to me. But we do that. We'll see people's behaviours... But we won't realise what's going on on the surface. We'll struggle to see what's going on in their hearts. What's actually shapes them. Why are they thinking like that? And in the church, we need to learn to embrace the differences in our community and learn from one another, but still seek what's distinctive about the message of Jesus and hold on to that but what can happen is you will find you'll come in with your own culture culture A and you'll find you can spend a lot of time rubbing up against people who are, who are culture B over here and what you're actually you think that you just want them to be more like Jesus but you're actually just trying to get them to be more like you actually we're not seeking for a church that's that is like one culture or another, we're seeking a church that's like Jesus, that's living out a gospel culture, that's following the word of God and seeking to love him with all of our hearts. You'll see even how you build friendships with people, people will build friendships differently based on a whole bunch of different reasons why. And sometimes that means we can struggle to relate to people who build friendships in a different way from how we do. We think, just just do it like me and we'll be fine. But actually, that's not what we're called to do. We build friendships with one another because we're called to. And we want to build that in a way that honors Jesus. What I want to do is, before we finish, is give us three practical ways that we can work this out, that we can genuinely maintain unity in the people of God and embrace our differences. I'm going to try and do this from this story here of how Peter responds. So first of all, humility. See, what Peter does is he recognizes his humanity. One of the verses that we didn't read in the story, when Peter is in goes to Cornelius' house, it says in verse 25, when Peter entered... Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up. That's such a beautiful picture. He he would have grabbed him by the arms and pulled him up. He lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. See, what Peter could have done is he could have lorded it over him. Well, I'm, I'm I'm the great Peter, the apostle. You must have heard about the day of Pentecost and how I preached and 3,000 people were saved. So yes, kneel before me. But he doesn't do that. He just picks him up. 
No, we both were equal before God. That's what he's saying to them. Not one of us is better or more privileged before God. We're both recipients of his mercy and grace. He shows humility to him. In one of the most practical ways you can show humility to people is actually to forgive people. Because so often we won't want to forgive people who've hurt us because we actually, we want to withhold the power in the relationship. If I forgive them, I'm going to have to give over power. That's what's going on in our brains. If I forgive them, then, then what they've done to injure me is, is forgotten. And, and I want to lord that over them. That thing that they did to hurt me, I want to use that against them. I want, I want to hold that in my heart as a sign that I'm better than them. That they hurt me and I didn't hurt them. That's how we tend to think. But when we choose to forgive someone, we, we give up that power. And we stop holding it over them. But actually, it becomes, ironically, the most powerful thing we can do. Because as soon as you forgive someone, or even better, if you go to someone else that you've hurt and you ask for their forgiveness, in doing that, you, you invite the Holy Spirit into that relationship. And the power of God comes. It's really the, the primary activity of humility is just to forgive one another. It's one of God's gifts for relationships. It's the best tool that you could have in your marriage or as a parent or with your own parents and definitely within the church family just to forgive one another. Second one, we see Peter, Peter exercises faith. It says in verse 28, Peter says to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I shall not, I should not call any person common or unclean. God had shown him. See, Peter, he listened to God, even though he was confused, even though it was so painful for him to hear that what he believed and lived with his whole life, he felt like it was just being erased away from him. He listened to God and he had faith in God. He trusted God. And so often when, when people hurt us, or people just do things that don't make sense. We, we run to, to snap judgments. We, they did this because of that. And we'll build a whole story in our heads. We'll, we'll judge their motives. We'll ju why, why did they do that? They just weren't being a good Christian. So we'll, we'll begin to build this picture of their evil, essentially. What they've done to hurt us. But perhaps a better way to think is rather than dwelling on how you see them, but how does God see them? How does God see them? The same grace that we've received, they've received. That our Father in heaven loves them 
dearly as his precious children, that you are now co-heirs with Christ together with that person, brothers and citizens together, fellow citizens of the household of God together. When you begin to see people as God sees them, it will change how you think about them. You'll stop judging them on their behaviours and you'll begin to see, no, God's at work in their life. You see, the, the grace of God when it comes to us is grace helps us to think the best of people. Not to always be critiquing those around us. Not to always be pointing out their faults. See, Jesus said to us, you know, pull the log out of your own eye before you take the splinter out of someone else's. Grace thinks the best of people. And that's the culture we want to build in this church. A culture of grace. Where we love one another. Where we don't judge people based on these irritating things that they do. But try and see their heart. Try and build relationships not that step over the divides around us. It can be so easy to be a church full of people from all over the world that have little cliques. It's the Dutch people hang out with the Dutch people and the English people hang out with the English people. And the Europeans might every now and again gather together. You know, we can, we can so easily begin to live like that. And that's not how God calls us to live. We've got to step over those divides and walls. And it'll be challenging because people are going to think differently from you. If someone spent their entire life living in a different nation from you, even in a, just a different family from you, where they've just, they've just grown up with a completely different set of experiences, it takes faith sometimes to say, I'm not just going to hang out with the people who are like me. That's what we do with friendships. We, we just pick and choose. Well, I, I'll get on without, well with that person, and that person's a bit like me. We'll just hang out with them. But in the church, we're called to step beyond those barriers and divides. And finally, what Peter does is he, he steps into their world. In chapter 11, they, he's criticized because he went to uncircumcised men and he ate with them. He sat round the dinner table. He went into their home. He had fellowship with them. The one thing he, he didn't want to do, that he wasn't supposed to do. But he stepped into their world. Because often in our world, we'll talk about the language of kindness, of sympathy, of empathy. But the grace of God is much more powerful. Those could be useful relational tools but what the grace of God does is it helps us to take radical action and actually step into people's worlds. And actually maybe an easy practical way to do it would be to flip it around the other way and invite people into your world. Invite them into your home. Have them come and have a meal with you. Just spend some, spend some time with them. As soon as you begin to step into each other's worlds... When you begin to step into their, their safe places, the places that they go to rest, the, the hidden places, when you get to know kind of beneath the surface of people's lives, when you step into that, you'll 
then you'll begin to receive more empathy for them, more understanding for them. You'll feel more grace and kindness towards them. This is what Peter does. He steps into their, their world and he's, he's just modeling his life from what Jesus has done. That Jesus stepped into our world. That God could have looked down on his creation, on this people that he created that had abandoned him and run away from him again and again, and could have just said, No, you're just common, you're unclean. But Jesus doesn't do that. He steps into our world. He takes on human flesh with all its flaws and failings. And he loves us wonderfully. Let me just finish by, I'm just going to read a couple of verses from Philippians 2. And then we're going to share communion together. It says this, Though he was in the form of God, it's talking about Jesus, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me pray for us, and then Dan's going to lead us in communion. Why don't you just stand to your feet if you're comfortable to do that? Jesus, we just want to thank you that, that you stepped into our world, that in your incarnation, in, in Jesus, you becoming a, one of us, you stepped into our world. And now you can sympathize with all our weaknesses. You know what we're like. Other people will see the behaviors, but you see our hearts. You see our, our good motives and our bad motives. You see all the, the rottenness and all the blessing in our lives. And yet you choose to love us again and again and again. Jesus, and we just want to come to you this morning and we, we want to love people as you first loved us. We want to build this church. We want to build our relationships in the way that we see you doing it. And we want to do it all because we know you've achieved it for us on the cross. That your body was broken so that the dividing walls between us could also be broken. That you sent your spirit to now unite us together as your people. We pray you'd help us to do that by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Dan.